Well, good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We are on part four. And um, I promise there's only going to be five parts to Revelation chapter 12. I know some of you are in doubt, but I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to hit the fast forward button. So we'll look at the bulk of Revelation 12 this morning in a bit of a um, a higher overview fashion. And then next week, what I want to do is focus in on Revelation 12, verse 11. I want to spend some time on verse 11 because it is really a thematic verse for the book of Revelation written to the seven churches as a point of encouragement. And it says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto the death. We'll look at that in detail next week, Lord willing. But let's ask the Lord to lead us again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for precious promise that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you, Lord, for redeeming for yourself a people. And Father, if we've been born again in the Spirit of God and our sins have been washed under your blood at the foot of the cross, we can claim to be your children this morning. And with that claim, we can come boldly to the throne to ask for help. We do that this morning, Lord. We we ask that you would help us to apply your word, that this would just not be another message, that it would not be just another something to sit through, but Lord, that you would use it to encourage your people to feed your sheep and edify your body. We ask for your help in these things this morning, and most importantly, that you would be honored and glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, just by way of reminder, we looked at verse 3 in detail. The sign of the dragon, verse 3 says, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns. I'm sorry, it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. See, I can't even remember. (laughs) This is why I need to review. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And our application, just by way of reminder, because I need to be reminded, we look at three things. Satan is a great and powerful deceiver. But if you remember when we started this chapter, I talked about two ditches. When we when we look at the subject matter of spiritual warfare, we can end up very quickly and easily into one of two ditches, one of which is an obsession with it. And and you you have met such people that are obsessed where we, for lack of a better way of saying it, see a demon under every rock. Conversely, there are those believers who are in bliss, ignorant bliss. The devil? Who's that? What does he want to do with me? And and so we can be out of balance and unbiblical on either side, either direction. Scripture warns us that our enemy, the arch enemy of our souls, is a great dragon. Now remember, the book of Revelation is symbolic, and it's to be understood that way. So it's it's giving us truth with symbolism. So 
Also, the other thing that we see with the book of Revelation, that it, it, it is in most cases self-interpreting. So we read down a little bit further in chapter 12, and the great red dragon is who? Satan. Yes, the great serpent. But he is a powerful deceiver. And we talked about the fact that we must guard against resting in our own wisdom and strength and not relying on Christ and his word to enter into spiritual battle in our own strength is foolishness. Secondly, our great weapon in resisting the devil and his temptation is submission to God's word. Satan had, and, and this is often misunderstood, when we read the account of the temptation of the Lord Jesus, and, and Jesus responds to Satan's temptations by quoting the word of God. We can take away from that very quickly that the, the right response to, to dealing with satanic temptation and spiritual warfare is to throw scripture at Satan. But is that all that Jesus did? No, Jesus says further, as he tells his disciples that he is about to leave, that Satan has nothing in him. Satan's gotten no dirt on the Lord Jesus. What is he saying? Jesus was perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Therefore, there is power in his claim to the authority of Scripture. A Christian who is disobedient, living in sin, has no claim to that authority. So our great weapon in resisting the devil and his temptation is submission and obedience to God's word. And we talked about that this morning. Thirdly and lastly, last week, two weeks ago, we have a great high priest who was tempted and never failed. And we must run to the throne with boldness to get grace and mercy and help. So this morning, I want to look at um, the last part of our of our outline, if you will. And I changed this because um, someone approached me and said, this is very confusing. You're not doing your outlines right. And my wife was absolutely correct. You don't, you don't do numbers on top of numbers. It's wrong. So I changed the first three to letters. And then this morning we'll have three points to go along with point C instead of point three. But I want to talk about irreconcilable differences this morning. Um, there is enmity, and this is really what Revelation 12 is driving home. There is enmity between the woman and the dragon. Now, we looked at great detail. Who is the woman? Church. Church. The dragon is who? Satan. So, again, symbolism here to teach us and to illustrate, illustrate truth. So what? are irreconcilable differences. You often hear that claim made when people part ways in a marriage. We just have irreconcilable differences. We've fallen out of love. Yes. So irreconcilable differences, it's a difference of opinion that cannot be brought into harmony or cannot be brought into agreement through compromise. A relationship that has become relentlessly hostile. So the question this morning is, when did the relationship between Satan become hostile? How far back do we have to go? All the way, Genesis chapter 3. 
So why why do we have irreconcilable differences here between the church and the devil? And there are two primary reasons that I want to point out to you first. <clears throat> number one, and this is not part of my outline, so take the term number one carefully. But first, because Satan is eternally condemned and the church is redeemed. So I wrote in, as I'm typing my notes, I wrote, Satan is eternally damned. And Word, Microsoft Office, corrected me and said, the reader might find this offensive. And I'm thinking, is Satan looking over my shoulder? Yes. I left it in there, by the way. It's still got the squiggly line, though. (laughs) Autocorrect. But Satan is eternally condemned. The word of God says he's judged already. What does that mean? That means that there is neither space in scripture given anywhere that we find that Satan has an opportunity to repent or be reconciled. It's not in there. In fact, scripture does not tell us anywhere to be reconciled to this enemy. In fact, it says the opposite. There are five references in Scripture, by the way, where it talks about our reconciliation to God and how we need to be reconciled, and the gospel brings that reconciliation. But there is nothing in Scripture that says, saint, child of God, be reconciled to this, your enemy, the devil. What does Scripture tell us? In James 4, 7, it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil. Yes, the word resist in the Greek, anthistami, to set against, to withstand, to resist, to oppose. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In 1 Peter 5, 9, following 5, 8, where the scripture says, Satan is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9 says, resist him firm in the faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There is nothing in Scripture that tells us that there is an off-ramp for Satan from the current trajectory that he is on. Secondly, Satan is condemned, we are redeemed, and that leaves us at complete and total odds. But why, why are we at a point where there is no reconciliation. Well, because simply this, God has decreed it. God's decreed it. In um, chapter three of the 1689 on God's decree, Jesse taught us um, on this chapter, I think three or four weeks ago. Paragraph four says this, these predestined and foreordained angels and people are individually and unchangeably designated. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or decreased. So the question is this, does God know who he has elected and those who he has eternally condemned? Absolutely. You mean it's not left up to chance? No. This is a doctrine that we call election And the flip side of it is reprobation. Election is the free and sovereign choice of God to save those that he will. 
And the decision not to save or to pass over is called preterition. We don't use that word a whole lot. We are familiar with the term reprobation, I think. But reprobation is defined as God's eternal decree, whereby he foreordained that certain persons would be excluded, we might say passed over, from the number of those saved by grace. And that secondly, these same persons would instead experience his just wrath. And you say, if that's that's not biblical, well, look at 1 Peter 2, 7-8 and Jude 4. The question that I ask when when we come to a very difficult subject like election and, and reprobation is who among us deserve to be saved? Our culture cries out for justice. We want justice. We want fairness. We want equity. But the reality of it is, is if we got what we deserved, where would we be? Justly deserving the eternal wrath of God. Without any hesitation, if we're honest, we would confess that. But when we talk about the doctrine of election, this is important. There's nowhere in scripture that tells us that we are to do everything we can to find out who is elect and who is not. Why? That's the eternal decree of God. It's not my business. Not of my business. There are those who would look at, look at Reformed theology and say, well, Reformed theology leads to hyper-Calvinism, which means Reformed believers do not preach the gospel, which is not true. But why? Well, if it's all up to God, then what do we have to do anyway? But the reality of it is, is God has commanded the church to preach the gospel. He not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means. And it is through the preaching of the word that sinners are converted. But on the question of, does God know? Well, yeah, the answer is absolutely. 100% he knows. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In John 3.18 through 20, I want you to think about this. And this is this is where I'm going with this and why I see this as an encouragement in the book of Revelation and how it is essentially declaring the beginning or the end from the beginning. Remember, this is written to seven literal churches who are going through extreme persecution and challenges. Why is this an encouraging thing for them? Why do they need to hear about spiritual warfare? And more importantly, why do they need to see what happens Jesus said to his disciples, I am not speaking of all of you. He's excluding Judas here. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Who's he talking to about there? Judas. Look at verse 19 of John 13. I am telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, listen, that you may believe that I am he. There is only one who can declare the beginning and the end. The Alpha, the Omega. 
And Jesus is telling his disciples, I am God. And the way that you will know that I am God is I am telling you right now that the scriptures will be fulfilled and how they will be fulfilled. In other words, God's eternal decree will come to pass. 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, may, so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, listen, and of the elect angels, the elect angels. God has chosen to reveal to us with certainty the eternal destiny of two parties, two there are only two groups that we can know with certainty certainty are elect or not elect. Satan and me. Why? Well, the scripture tells us that we are to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. Are you saying that we can know definitively that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are elect? The answer to that is absolutely yes. What I cannot know is if you are. Why? It's not my business, is it? And so we we need to be careful, and, and God is very specific in dealing with the subject of election, that it is it's dealing with, with individuals you and I can know with absolute assurance. It should be, by the way, a point of encouragement for us. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you believe that? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Listen to this. By the way, elect saints do elect things. Verse 5, virtue add, or excuse me, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What is Paul talking about here? The sanctification process in the life of the believer. We don't sit on a log waiting for the Lord to sanctify us, do we? There's what we call, and Mark, you preached on this in James, there's active waiting, active obedience we're not passive in the process of sanctification. Now, that does not mean we make ourselves holy. That's not what I'm saying. There's a difference between justification and sanctification. But, but the scripture says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Listen, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, verse 10 of 1 Peter 1 Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm 
you're calling an election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to give you um, some old English language here and a quote from Calvin on Sermon 3 on, on a series he did on election and reprobation. He says this, and it's it's a just a basic truth. He says, it behooveth us. I say, to have our foundation upon the election of God, that we may be so settled thereon that we will know that our Lord, being our Father, will not suffer that we perish, seeing that we are his children. What is he saying? The foundation for the assurance of our salvation is an electing God, a gracious, sovereign, electing God. Why is this doctrine vitally important? In many churches, it's glossed over, it's excused away, it's ignored because it can be considered um, controversial. But I would argue that Scripture makes it plain that, that the doctrine of election, predestination, is there for the encouragement of the church. You are not a child of God by accident. Because just as the doctrine of election is the foundation of our eternal assurance and a guarantee that as Jesus says in John 10 verse 27 my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give unto them eternal life and listen they will never perish your salvation is not secured by your performance your salvation is not secured by how you feel you feel like a child of God every day. I don't. But my feelings have nothing to do with the saving and preserving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. Now, if we disobey, the assurance that we have is greatly hindered. But the truth, the reality of what has happened, he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Are you a no one? Are you a no one? I'm a no one. I can't snatch myself out of his hand. He is God. I am not. I do not keep myself in a state of grace. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Why is the doctrine of election vitally important? It is the foundation of our eternal assurance and guarantee that we will never be lost as a child of God. If you belong to him. And how do we know if we belong to him? Well, we just read in Peter, as we're growing, an inarguable fact and reality of the Christian life is growth. We've now, um, we're now on baby number 10. And what he is not doing is staying the same size every single day. He eats more and more and more. The grocery bill gets more and more and more. But why? Because it's natural for babies to grow. It is the same way for the children of God. If you belong to God and you've been born again in the spirit of God, you will grow. You will. 
because the spirit of God resides in you and he will bring forth fruit in your life. As we submit and surrender and obey the spirit of God, there will be great growth. So what about the other side of this? Well, is as important as election is, Satan's reprobation that's highlighted in this passage is a guarantee, what? Of his defeat. It's guaranteed. Revelation 12, 12, therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Remember, we talked about the difference between those who dwell in heaven and the earth dweller. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why is Satan angry? Because he knows, what, that his time is short. Satan knows that his time is short. Does he know about his own reprobation? Yes. Hmm. That's why the anger... And that's why he turns his wrath against that which he can reach. And who is that? Genesis 3.15, we talk about the decree of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said to the, the wicked one, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that point on, It was declared there is no peace. There is no compact that we can ever come to with the enemy to be at peace with him. So three points this morning I want to point out from Revelation 12. First of all, the rebellion. The rebellion. It says his tail, that is the dragon, swept or hauled down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. There is a lot of debate, debate amongst commentators as to what this symbolism is referring to here. One position um, that's commonly held is this is a general statement regarding Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel 8, in verse 8, it says, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn, and the horn is a picture of power. We've looked at that in our study. The great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great, listen to this, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of this of the sanctuary was overthrown. And there are many people that apply this to Antiochus Epiphanes, who referred to himself as God manifest. And he plundered the temple. In fact, sacrificed pigs on the altar um, in 170 BC. And there's there's an argument to be made for this, but I think as this is referring, and, and the argument made is, well, and, and I made this argument last week, Satan has two means of, of operation. One is seduction and one is destruction. 
He uses the error of false doctrine to seduce and deceive. And when that is ineffectual for him, what does he do? He uses force. And the picture of Antiochus Epiphanes is certainly a picture of Satan motivating a wicked king to do wicked things against the people of God. It's a pattern. But I think this is this is a picture of of Satan here. And the the context of of this passage is dealing with the nature and the history of spiritual warfare. It's answering for us the why why is there enmity between the church and Satan? I want you to see it. It says he drew a third of the stars. And this is just a portion, not the whole. What does that mean? It means it means he's limited. And and I, I think this is dealing with, um, as I study this, I think this is dealing with Satan's fall and his pulling along with him angels who left their first estate according to the book of jude but it's not all of the angels that fell and it means his strength is limited the word um, stars we looked at revelation chapter 2 the stars are the seven angels or messengers of the church and so it is appropriate to see the symbology as dealing with angels but I wouldn't be dogmatic either way because I can make a biblical case for both perspectives the reality of it is though is that Satan is a deceiver, and he pulls with him those who follow him. But there is a picture here, I think, of potentially the pre-Adamic rebellion that we see in the rest of Scripture, but it could also be a picture of spiritual warfare. I wouldn't argue it with someone. But, But notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. What is Jesus saying? Satan's a defeated foe. That's what's being pictured here in Revelation chapter 12 when we see the the deposing of the enemy. Go to the book of Job, and what is what does Satan do with his spare time? He's an accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12, and, and the reason I want to fast forward through this chapter is not because we want to hurry with this, but I think the second picture that we see in Revelation, these are portraits, if you will. Revelation 12 answers this question for us in context. Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, notice something here. This should encourage us. Who is the dragon not fighting with? Is he fighting with God? Is he fighting with Jesus? Jesus is God, by the way. I'm not dividing there. But but who do we see Satan contending with? Michael and the angels. What does that tell us? Satan is a created being. Satan is limited in his power and his authority. And what happens when he fights? The dragon and his angels fight back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. He gives us a picture of time here. Why? How long has Satan been a serpent? From the ancient days. He's taking us back to the beginning here. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, I, I think this is a picture of what we're seeing up earlier in the chapter. Um, in context, and again, we're looking at the picture that this is painting. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. In Jude verse 5 and 6, it says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And I think we're seeing here a picture, a telescopic historical survey, of, if you will, to explain what we as the church are experiencing in present day. Why the spiritual warfare? It's important to know why and how it started. Satan, Jesus says, is a murderer from the beginning. And that's where I'm going next. Who did he want to murder at the very beginning? If he could have, he would have dethroned God. He couldn't. Number two, or point number two, the attempted murder that we see. <clears throat> Look in the second part of verse four. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What is this talking about? This is a gruesome picture, right? It's a violent picture. Satan's intent from the very beginning, and I would argue that Genesis chapter 3.15 is the very first declaration of the gospel that we find in scripture. Who is the seed of the woman that would, that would give Satan a mortal wound to the head? Christ. You, Satan, will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. No contest. But since that time, since the garden, Satan has desired and worked to thwart and to, and to disrupt the redemptive purposes of God. If that is not what we're studying in the Old Testament, what is it? Think about what we looked at this morning. And I alluded to two weeks ago when the scripture says Satan himself tempted David to number the people of God. Why? Because he wanted to bring God's anger and judgment against Israel. And why did he do that? Because he was constantly trying to thwart the redemptive plan of God. And we see examples of it in, in the life of the kings of Judah. Treachery, assassination, sin, compounding sin. And what happened? The baby born of a virgin in the midst of chaos, came into this world, and there was not a thing Satan could do about it. Jesus said in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you will do his will, and your will is to do your father's desire. 
He was a murderer from the beginning. And no doubt, the scripture says, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what? You will die. Satan want to destroy and kill Adam and Eve? You bet. Satan and his pride is shown for us in Isaiah 14, and I won't take time to read it as time is running on us, but Isaiah 14, 13 through 14 tells us about his desire to ascend to heaven above the stars of God to sit on a throne. And we find something very interesting. Um, Satan is in the know. I don't know how much he knows, but we know that he wanted to kill Jesus. How do we know that? Well, what happened to Mary and Joseph, in particular, when the wise man came to Herod? Yeah, Matthew 2. When they departed, that is the wise man, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child. Why? To destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or older or under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Listen to this. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they care no more. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is sovereign over the enemy. Where did Herod get the idea? that he would just commit mass murder. Where did that come from? We talked about how Satan works within authorities, within kings, within governments. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that this is a, is a perfect example of that. Satan absolutely motivated Herod to commit this awful atrocity. But I want you to understand this, the confluence of any and all satanic scheming and the mustering of every worldly power at Satan's disposal cannot thwart the decrees and the, re the redemptive plan of Almighty God. Can't. That should encourage us. You're sitting here thinking this morning or worried about, um, and I made a list of all the things that come to mind quickly. You're going to think I'm insane. But what about the UN Sustainable Development Goals and Depopulation? The World Economic Forum, ESG, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, digital currency, social credit system, and you could keep going with a long and lengthy list of things that could overwhelmingly concern us if we did not believe that regardless of what satanic scheme could possibly be mustered up, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. God is sovereign. And scripture gives us point after point to show us that he, the 
despite the scheming and the plotting of the enemy, is sovereign over that. Thirdly, and lastly, the church is the enemy within reach. If you look at verses 5 and 6, she gave birth to a male child, that is the Lord Jesus, one who was able to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and a woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Micah 5, 1 through 5, specifically talks about the picture of um, the woman in labor waiting to give birth. And it is a picture of redemptive history being played out. The Old Testament is a picture of God making promises, covenant promises, and all of them being fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament is about. It screams the gospel. And and we know that this is the Lord Jesus because this is a fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The child is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting to me. This is a very abbreviated description. Here is the dragon waiting to devour the child. And in a phrase, in a just a short phrase, it says her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It, it, it leaves out the whole life of Jesus, doesn't it? It seems to. But what is it emphasizing here? That Satan, despite his best effort to destroy the Messiah, failed. We talked about the fact that he personally, the scripture says, went into Judas to ensure the fact that his betrayal would be complete. This phrase is not to diminish his life and the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, but really it focuses in on his resurrection and his kingship. It says he was caught up, victorious over death, the grave. And what is he doing? Where was he caught up to, does it say? To God and where? His throne. What is he saying here? Jesus is king. Satan is not. That's the point of this. The point of encouragement to the seven churches is Jesus is king. The enemy, despite his power, despite his schemes and his wiles and his deception and his anger, he's not ambivalent towards the church. Despite all of that, Jesus is king. Rest in that. Revelation 12, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the woman, but the earth came to help to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river. Excuse me that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony. And he stood on the sand of the sea. There's a lot of imagery here. But briefly, I want to just point out a couple things. What is the wilderness? It says the woman is, is ushered into the wilderness on angels or eagle's wings, where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The wilderness, and, and there is so much of this imagery as we've studied through this, it takes us right back to Exodus. The church would have been very familiar with this symbolism. A place of escape. Where did God deliver Israel from? Egypt. And where did he take Israel to? Another great and powerful city where they would be safe. No, took them right into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of wandering. It is a place of testing it is a place of pilgrimage and temporary residence. The children of Israel did not, they well, they stayed for a long time. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. But the wilderness is not your forever home, is it? It's not where you want to go to build your house. Why? Because it's harsh. It's cruel. But the scripture says something very interesting here. The woman is taken into the wilderness. Why? It says to be nourished. Why? That doesn't make sense. Why would you take a woman into the wilderness for her good, for her nourishment? Well, it harkens back to this. How did God sustain Israel in the wilderness? Manna. manna. Did they pick manna off manna trees in the wilderness? No. There was no doubt to the children of Israel who was sustaining them while they were in the wilderness. There was a doubt when they were in Egypt, wasn't there? Because the temptation was always, let's go back to Egypt for the leeks and the onions, because it's good. But out here in the wilderness, every day, God dropped manna from heaven to feed them. Not enough for more than one day, except for the Sabbath. Why? To teach them that they were to rely on him and him alone. We find Elijah, after his confrontations with the prophets of Baal. Woe is me, I'm the only one left. I'm going out to the wilderness to die. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He nourishes him in the wilderness. Jesus, after... He was tempted of the devil. What do we find? The angels ministered to him where? He's in the wilderness. That's the picture here that that the scripture is painting for us. It is a place of divine nourishment where only God sustains his church. Now, it's interesting. There's the mention of 1260 days. We see that multiple times. A time... End times and half a time is the same as three and a half years, the same as 1260 days. It's all tying together to show us that this is this is looking at the same picture. Revelation 11, when we talked about the two witnesses, look at this picture. It kind of slapped me in the face. Revelation 11, 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses 
and they will prophesy for 1260 days. The same thing we're talking about here. The woman is in the wilderness for how long? 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Who is in the wilderness clothed in sackcloth? Sustained. Yes. Revelation 12, 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. I want you to see that the role of the church is to declare the coming Lord. What was John the Baptist doing in the wilderness? John 1, 23, when they asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? What did he say? Not me. What's your role? What is your purpose, John? And he says, makes to make to make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Our purpose in this world is not to make it home. Our purpose is not to be comfortable. God has his church in the wilderness so that we are reminded that we are pilgrims. We can put down deep roots here. We talked about the priests this morning. They were trying to put down roots. Money. Takes money to put down deep roots. It's not why we're here. It's not why we're here. Scripture says he bore them out on eagle's wings. The picture of the woman being taken into the wilderness with eagle's wings. I wore my eagle shirt. I didn't realize it was after the fact, but I thought, how cool is that? And then we have a Broncos fan. You got to work on your drawing. Exodus 19.4, here's the picture. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and listen, and how I bore you on what? Eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Here's another allusion back to Exodus. But the picture is very clear. How was Israel delivered from Egypt? Because they, they had a mighty rebellion and an uprising and they overthrew Pharaoh? No. God bore them on eagle's wings into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. <clears throat> How about the water from the mouth of the dragon? The dragon is angry and he spews out water from his mouth, a flood, if you will. That's the picture that's being portrayed here. It's an overwhelming tidal wave against the church. Well, what is that? There are 19 uses in the book of Revelation for the word mouth. And we've looked at this. Revelation 9 talks about um, the sulfur and the smoke that comes out of their mouths. And what is this a picture of? This is a picture of false doctrine, deception, lies. The picture of Satan flooding after the woman is what? He's trying to overwhelm her with error. He's trying to overwhelm her with deception. And, you know, if you look around, it looks like he's been pretty effective, doesn't it? But what does Jesus say? If it were possible, let the, the deception would be so great that if it were possible, the elect would be deceived. But guess what? No man can pluck them out of the Father's hands. I look at the picture of this 42 months or 1260 days or three and a half years while the witnesses prophesy back in Revelation 11 and in Revelation 12, the church is nourished in the wilderness. And it's just another reminder that this is the short period of time between the Lord's ascension after he's caught up to, to God in the throne 
and his return. The encouraging thing to me is it's a short period of time from a eternal perspective. I see article after article that is maligning the apostles for statements like this. Revelation or Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Are they wrong? No. But the reality is the, the perspective of eternity from the Lord's ascension to his return is, is a blip. It's a short period of time. James 5, 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is way, way, way off down the road. No, it's at hand. He's coming soon. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So what does this have to do with me? As we close this morning, just some thoughts on application. The reality of spiritual warfare in heaven. We see this symbolism here of, of this great war has visible implications on earth. And we as believers cannot afford to take the tack that we are not embroiled in a spiritual battle. And it doesn't, it doesn't always show itself as you would think it would show itself. But I guarantee you, when you fight and wrestle to spend time in worship with the Lord by yourself, you engage in spiritual battle. You do. There was a, an article written, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was, it was great. It talked about the distraction of good things. There are a hundred things that you can think of that you would not have thought of before that you could do when it comes time to spend time with the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? You've got this very concise to-do list. If you guys are fans of to-do lists, I have them. The problem is I forget where I put my to-do list and I have a to-do to do my to-do list. But when it comes time to spend time with the Lord, what happens? A thousand things come to mind. I need to do this. I need to do this. It was Martin Luther who said, I have so much to do that I need to spend an extra, I think he said three hours with the Lord. Thinking, Wow. But I have so much to do that I cannot afford to not spend time with the Lord. Spiritual warfare shows itself in very, very simple and basic ways in our lives. But it, it is absolutely a reality. And we're seeing the why in Revelation 12. The church is redeemed. Satan is judged. He is condemned. He is damned for eternity. But Christ is king. Secondly, Revelation declares the end from the beginning as a source of encouragement to the seven churches, and by extension, you and I. Satan has been cast down. He has been dealt the death blow at the cross, and the clock of redemptive history is expiring, and Satan's eternal destiny is sealed, and he knows it, and he has great fury because of it but the future cannot be altered. It is decreed. 
and his demise is decreed. Thirdly, just as Christ was born in a manger of a virgin who was of the, and you guys will think this is crazy, but one of the most fascinating passages in all of the Bible is Matthew chapter 1. And how many times have we gotten to Matthew chapter 1 when we skipped right over it because it's genealogy? It's boring. But there are three things that jump out at me about Matthew chapter 1, and that is the name of Tamar, that is the name of Rahab, and Uriah, specifically Uriah's wife. What does all that mean? That means that in spite of the wickedness that took place throughout all of the Old Testament, God is sovereign over all of it. And, and the lineage of Jesus was preserved despite all of that, Mark, as you say, messed up in this. And the Old Testament is full of messed up in this. And you know what? Our lives are full of messed up in this. And God is sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over the temptation of the wicked one. He's sovereign over your failings, your discouragements, because you have failed. Why does he tell us we have a great high priest? Because we need one. Fourthly, though we are currently the target of Satan's wrath, we are borne up on angels' wings, eagles' wings, and we're protected from the flood of deception. We're not protected from Satan's flood of deception because we're smart. That would be arrogant of us. We are protected from the enemy's deception because Spirit of truth lives inside of us as the children of God. That is our seal, our stamp of protection from the flood of the enemy. And lastly, we are again reminded that the day of the Lord is at hand. And as our brother preached last week, it is so easy to take our focus off of things eternal, isn't it? So easy. We have bills to pay. We have mouths to feed. Houses to clean. And none of that will do it, do it by itself, will it? There's a thousand things that take our mind off of eternity, but the reality of it is, is the Lord is coming soon. And that needs to remain our focus. That's why we come to the Lord's table. And I'll ask uh, Mark and Jesse if you guys will come up and, and join me at the Lord's table. One of the things that the Lord is teaching me regarding the Lord's Supper is the fact that we are to do it frequently to be reminded, to remember, because my frail mind forgets. And if we're honest with ourselves, we forget on a weekly basis, don't we? Um, our position on the Lord's Supper is that it belongs to the children of God. Um, at Word of Grace, our table's open. If you're a child of God, then you're welcome at the Lord's table. There is a warning that Scripture gives us, and we are remiss if we if we don't remind ourselves of this, that coming to the table, taking it lightly, not discerning the Lord's body. And really what that's referring to is not that we're sinless when we come to the table, there was a period of time when I thought, before I come to the Lord's table, I must confess every possible sin that I've committed, or I, I, I can't come to it because I'm not discerning the Lord's body. But this is really referring to 
unbelievers coming to the table because who is it that does not discern the value of the Lord's body but the unbeliever? But if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What happens when we judge ourselves? When we do an honest assessment of who we are, there's only one conclusion that the child of God can come to. I am a sinner in need of the grace of God. If that's the conclusion that you come to, then the Lord's table is for you. To remember and to celebrate what he has done on behalf of his people. And I would argue his sustaining us in the wilderness. I'm going to take just a minute to pray and let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to come to his table and then I'll pray and we will proceed with the Lord's Supper this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, Lord, to remember and reflect on what you've done, how you have saved us and Lord, picked us up on eagle's wings and rescued us from the enemy. Your word says you translated us or transported us from one kingdom, kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. You've taken children of wrath and you made them your children. Father, you've taken our wickedness and our sin and given us robes of righteousness, made us worthy to sit at your table, not because of our own works of righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Given us the freedom and the privilege to come boldly to the throne, not shirking away, not shrinking away in shame, but knowing that we can come boldly because we have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to protect us from the wrath that we rightly deserved. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that this morning, of your immense and amazing grace that you have shown to your people as we come to your table this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.